0: Good morning, everyone. So we're going to be uh, using Matthew 4 as the next hopscotch on our way to where we're going to focus for the sermon. Um, Like I said, we're kind of jumping where we're going to be going. We're going to be um, spending all of our time in the Gospel of John after Matthew 4, uh, 23 through 25. And I'll read this before i saying a couple more things uh, to introduce the sermon this morning. Uh, so Matthew chapter 4, uh, 23 through 25. Matthew chapter 4, 23 through 25. And Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching. So notice this. What was he preaching? The gospel of the kingdom. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill. Those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So in verse 23, it mentions what Jesus was teaching. And this is emphasized frequently in the gospels. And even emphasized in the book of Acts, what the apostles were teaching, what Peter was teaching, what Paul was teaching. Uh, The book of Acts ends in chapter 28 saying that uh, Paul was preaching the kingdom with all openness, unhindered. Uh, So the kingdom is the focus of the Bible, especially the New Testament and the emphasis of Jesus' teaching. But someone who I really respect who uh, preaches uh, as an evangelist mentioned to me last year that they noticed this emphasis in Jesus' teaching in the book of Acts, and they realized they don't teach with that same emphasis, that they haven't been teaching as much the kingdom and what the kingdom is. They've more been teaching personal salvation. And his point was that he, first of all, wants to teach what Jesus taught and emphasize what Jesus emphasized. And the second point he made was personal salvation is available because the kingdom is open. And personal salvation is found in the kingdom and when we understand the kingdom. This point was that Jesus starts with conveying the kingdom first, and everything makes sense on that foundation. And that oftentimes there's misunderstandings of the nature of uh, salvation, the nature of God's purpose, because people aren't really being taught about the kingdom, right? So this lesson is going to be... Uh, very simple, this this again relates to the principle this year of trying to teach some foundational things and strengthen our foundation. But I want to argue something that I'll follow up on through this lesson, that a kingdom ultimately has four things, and the kingdom of heaven has these four things. Number one, a kingdom has government. A kingdom can't be a kingdom if there's not a government, and that is a king and a law. So the kingdom starts with a government. Number two, inherent within a kingdom is a community. You know, a kingdom isn't much of a kingdom if it's devoid of any citizens, of anyone living in it, right? So a kingdom has government, it has community. And then number three, a kingdom has resources. And that's going to change from kingdom to kingdom. And oftentimes a kingdom's glory and power is really determined by the kind of resources that it has, right? So a kingdom has a government, it has community, it has resources, and oftentimes... Kingdoms have enemies, right? And that's certainly true of the kingdom of heaven, of God's kingdom. So we're going to be looking at those four things and understand why this is good news that Jesus came preaching the kingdom. Uh, As an introduction to that good news for the scripture reading, we looked at Psalm 72 and Daniel chapter 7. There were many prophecies like these scriptures that we read, many, where the Jewish people were anticipating not just a personal salvation, certainly that was included, But what the Jews were anticipating was a new government, (laughs) that God was going to establish this new kingdom, a kingdom that would have a glory that would surpass any period of time in the Jewish history, better than the time of David, better than the time of Solomon. There would be real justice, real salvation in this kingdom, real abundance, real life. And this is going to be an eternal kingdom that would never fade, never be overcome, never destroy, never deteriorate. And so when Jesus was preaching this good news, Things like Psalm 72 would come to mind. Things like Daniel chapter 7 would come to mind, that Jesus was ushering in the era of this kingdom that the Jewish people were expecting. So now we're going to spend the rest of our time in John. And I want to start with John chapter 18. And we're going to start with this concept that a kingdom must have government, right? And a kingdom's government consists of both a king and a law, right? Uh, It's kind of inherent within the name. It's a kingdom. So it's not just a group of people acting as uh, judges or um, a group like a senate over a kingdom. But a kingdom has a singular authoritative figure, a king. And this king then dictates the law and the government. John chapter 18, we're going to kind of make points from this text here. John chapter 18 thirty three through thirty seven, and this is John's recording of an interaction between Jesus and the governor Pilate. John eighteen thirty three. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, and this was somewhere the Jews would not enter, so it kind of becomes a very personal conversation between Jesus and Pilate. And he summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this from yourself, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What did you do? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You yourself said, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, here's my my voice. So a couple things before we get into more detail on this. Number one is verse 36. Jesus is the center of his kingdom. This kingdom belongs to Jesus. So he is the king. He is the center of his kingdom. He is the authoritative figure of his kingdom. He demonstrates the nature of the kingdom in his life, his death, his resurrection, Jesus embodies all of the realities of the nature of this kingdom in his life, his death, and his resurrection. But then, uh, number two, this is a kingdom that is not of this world, right? Just like in Matthew, this was the kingdom of heaven. Something I didn't mention is, uh, something we won't go into detail much about, is that a kingdom needs a territory as well. And the territory of God's kingdom specifically is, it's, it's a spiritual kingdom, it's established in heaven, So it's not of this realm. And so Jesus in verse 37 says he came to bear witness to the truth, to point to the truth. So Jesus's life demonstrates the nature of his government. He is a king with all power who knows me intimately and loves me relentlessly. You know, and this kind of speaks to the character of this king. And I want you to think, what kind of character did Jesus prove himself to have? I want to stop on that question and illustrate, illustrate this with someone that I used to talk with and study with. So I used to study with somebody who is a self-proclaimed uh, anarchist. And uh, he uh, had a lot of problems with government. And he would talk to me about his uh, problem with government was abuse of power, disparity between governing authorities and the citizens and the needs of the citizens, and the partiality that can exist within governing authorities and a government and its citizens again, and not taking proper care of its citizens. And this may sound really strange, but I loved talking to him about this. (laughs) Not that I encouraged him to feel any bad feelings about the government. I didn't. But the way that I encouraged him was this gave opportunity to talk about the kingdom. And everything he was upset with about worldly governments, I would try to encourage him, like, those things, we have no power to fix those things. (laughs) We are simply victims of the powers that be. And I would ask him, you know, can you fix the government? Do you have any hope of changing the nature of our government? And he would say, well, honestly, no. There's really nothing he was going to be able to do to impact that. And so I told him, you know that all of those problems that you're upset with have actually been solved completely? And I would tell him, I'm a part of a kingdom where I'm not upset about the government. (laughs) I'm, I'm not only am I not upset about it, I'm in a kingdom where there is perfect justice. So getting back to this idea that Jesus embodies the reality of his kingdom and what kind of character did Jesus prove to have, was there any disparity in Jesus' life between himself and the people that he would bring into his kingdom? Was there any disparity? Was there any partiality? Was there any unjust decision that he ever made? No, in Jesus' kingdom, he established a government where, again, he has all power. Everything is at his disposal. And he knows me intimately. Jesus proved that his love is intimate and relentless. When Jesus suffered on the cross, did his grace ever waver? Did his purpose to love people, to care for people, did that ever change or shift in a bitter direction? No. Jesus was pushed to the limits. And in the end, his character was only proven more gracious through all of those things. So with Jesus, every problem anyone may have with any government authority or any government or any law, Jesus is the solution. And thinking about the gospel in terms of a good news of a kingdom helped me immensely in talking to someone who is a self-proclaimed anarchist. And you could think, well, what can you do with someone like this? Talk to him about the kingdom. (laughs) Tell him that the, the problems that you have with government, the solution isn't that this government or any government is ultimately going to be a perfect government. The solution is that a perfect government has come. It's just, that isn't Jesus. You need to learn about this king and this kingdom. Uh, And so we got into a study of the gospel, and this person didn't become a Christian in our interactions, uh, but it gave opportunity to talk about the gospel of Luke uh, in length. And I want you to look at this next point here. It's not just that Jesus loves me relentlessly, It's that really he proved in his death and resurrection that he's the only one who has the power to both save and restore me. You know, when we understand the problem that Jesus came ultimately to address, there's nobody else who can save me from sin. There's nobody else who has the authority or the power to take me out of worldly citizenship and bring me into the citizenship of being a part of this kingdom. So Jesus has the power to both save me from my sin, and also to continuously work with me to restore me. No other worldly power has that authority or that ability. So Jesus proved in his worldly life, his death and his resurrection, he has all power, all authority. He knows me intimately. You know, my requests in prayer and the issues of my life don't go in a stack of papers where maybe one day God will care about it and address it because there's just so many people and so many problems. No, he proved that he knows me he is attentive to my needs. He loves me relentlessly, compassionately, and he is able to save me and restore me. And the law of his kingdom reflects all of these principles. Go to John chapter 15, 9 through 10. John 15, 9 through 10. So a government needs some kind of law. And Jesus talks about the nature of this, the value of this in John 15, 9 through 12. So here he says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made complete. This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Now, so this, this may sound like a side point, but it really isn't. In the world, there's oftentimes a different kind of grace that gets taught, a cheap grace, a false grace. And the way that a false grace would be presented is that God's love means obedience. is not very important. You know, even specific obedience to commandments is not important. But if you look at verse 10, does Jesus think keeping his commandments is not a big deal? So here's the reality about the love of God and the care of Jesus. Based on what Jesus says here, does his love undermine or lessen the need for obedience? Or does it enhance and strengthen the need for obedience? Ultimately, real grace makes obedience possible. Because what the New Testament reveals, what Jesus reveals, is that it's actually impossible to obey God if not for his grace. And so it's his grace that both motivates obedience, it makes it possible to obey. But it's grace that makes us understand that the more I obey God, the closer I get to God. The more I abide in his love. Because obedience in the kingdom is not just like a judicial law. It is my access. It's my bridge into the glory of God. And the law established in this government brings me closer and closer to the king of that government. It's a perfect government. With a perfect law. With perfect justice. That's good news. That's why this kingdom, first and foremost, is good news. Do you know what Jesus did, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, after it introduces the fact that he's teaching about the gospel of the kingdom? He gives a sermon with instructions to convey the reality of the nature of this kingdom. The government is built on his love and the law, the commandments that he gives, reflect and bring us into the glory of that kingdom. All right. The kingdom has community. Look at chapter 17. A kingdom cannot be a kingdom without community. And again, if if we emphasize in teaching the gospel more a personal salvation, it can lead to a misunderstanding, I think, of the importance, the inherent importance in community with the gospel. So, John 17, 20 through 26. So, as Jesus is praying um, in John's gospel before he's crucified, This is the last thing he ends this prayer on. I do not pray on behalf of these alone, and that would be his innermost disciples, the 12, but for those who believe in me through their word, that would be us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. All right, so Jesus' community is called to have the same kind of unity that he had with his Father. Notice that in verse 21. Jesus was praying that we could all be one, even as the Father and Jesus were one. I want you to think, in what ways were Jesus and the Father one? And was that just something passive and incidental? Or was that something that was purposeful and very diligently pursued? So Jesus and the Father, they they believed the same things. Jesus accepted God's judgments and his instructions. He would emphasize that throughout John, that because he loved God, he did exactly what God commanded. He would also emphasize that he would do exactly as he sees the Father doing. So Jesus believed what God believed. He shared his judgments and his teaching. But he walked in perfect step with the Father, following his example. So the unity that Jesus is calling us to is not passive. And this again means there's no such thing as an isolated disciple. You know, even if someone is saved and they don't yet have like a local church that they're commuting with or in communion with, that's something that God is seeking to establish, right? Right? And again, even without physical ties, there is a part of a greater heavenly community that people in the body of Christ are a part of. The idea is, this is a unity that is not achieved passively. It's not incidental, it's not accidental, and it's also not just that we believe doctrinal things together, it's that we are trying to grow into this full unity, not just of ideology, but of practice, of passion. That we are sharing the same passion for the lost, the same passion to love one another, to dig our hands deep in each other's lives. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 2. So what Jesus prays for, we see that demonstrated at the very beginning of the church's establishment. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter, an apostle, preaches a sermon. So now you have people believing in Jesus through their word. And what kind of relationships do we see? So then those had received his word, were baptized, And that day there were added, and I've inserted here to the kingdom, about 3,000 souls. And what did these people do now who had believed the apostles' word and were now in this community, this kingdom community? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were wanting to believe what was right and share in the teaching and to fellowship. They were devoting themselves to each other, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were diligently devoting to things that involved this new community, And not just in a generic sense, but again, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They wanted to believe what Jesus taught through the apostles. They wanted to have a shared passion, a shared community, and that's a fulfillment, a demonstration of what Jesus was praying for. So just to emphasize one more time, the kingdom inherently involves community, which means the idea of being a Christian in isolation is actually contrary to the basic idea of a kingdom. And that if I think I can be saved and be okay with God and not care about any community, not care about loving others or being united with fellow believers, what that really shows is I don't understand the kingdom on a fundamental level. And either that's a problem with what I've been taught or a problem with my own rebellion against what has clearly been taught. Right? Okay, kingdom has government, kingdom has community, And a kingdom has resources. And a kingdom's kingdom's power and glory is oftentimes determined by the nature of its resources. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we'll just look at a few verses here. We'll look at a few different passages for the resources of the kingdom. And the idea here in John 1 is that in the beginning, Jesus is given credit as creating everything. And that everything he's created, he's the one who's also given any resource to any kingdom to make life in any way livable or in any way joyful. So John chapter 1, certain verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Go down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness, notice this, we have all received, and grace upon grace. All right. Jesus created everything. So everything that we have is ultimately pointing to the reality of the kingdom. You know, it's as if a gift is given from myself to my wife. I give a gift to my wife. And that's supposed to reflect something about my love for my wife, my relationship with my wife. And so we all have been given grace upon grace, life, breath, sun shining in the sky. We have resources all around us, grocery stores that are filled with food, And all of this is being deliberately, graciously, mercifully given by the king of a different kingdom to help us to understand something about the nature of this king, that even while we are enemies of him and don't even know him, this king is the one responsible for any grace that we experience in our lives. Turn to John chapter six. Ultimately, the point of this is, although Jesus owns every resource in all existence, the kingdom is filled with eternal spiritual resources. The offer that God makes to draw us to become a part of his kingdom isn't that he is going to make our lives wealthy. And as we've talked about in recent sermons with Luke chapter 6, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger, blessed are those who are hungry now, blessed are those who weep now, blessed are you when you are excluded and persecuted for his namesake, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, etc., etcetera. Et We talked about how those commands and principles are going to make our life harder (laughs) presently. And the reason we do those things is because of the hope within the gospel and because of our love for God. So John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He literally created something from nothing. You know, he had some loaves of bread, but he fed over 5,000 people with just a few meager loaves of bread. And the people understood that this implies something about Jesus. They wanted earlier in the chapter then to actually force him to be their king. They wanted to take him and make him their king. And of course, he literally created bread from just a few measly morsels for everybody and they were full. And so this king has the resources to take care of us. And when they come back to him, Jesus exposes the fact that they were seeking him for the wrong reasons because his kingdom is not of this world. Look at John 6:39, as he's trying to explain this to them. "Now this is the will of him who sent me, that all of that which he has, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son of Man and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day." Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, and this is something he had been saying earlier, "I am the bread that came down from heaven." They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except the one who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which which comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." And then verse 52, they proceed to grumble. And in verse 66, by the end of this conversation, many of his disciples went away and were walking with him no more. Even though Jesus is talking about the resources of his kingdom. The idea is this. The kingdom's resources challenge my values and my perspective. When he says, nobody can come to me unless the father draws him, and everyone will be taught of God. The idea is no one is coming into the kingdom accidentally. The people who come into the kingdom, they are taught the truth. Their perspective is challenged. And they recognize that Jesus is offering them something in his kingdom that they know they need, and they're willing to go get it. I want to illustrate this with uh, my brother-in-law, Dan, and his wife, Sonia. Most of you know about the situation I'm going to bring up for the illustration But my brother-in-law, Dan, for those of you who don't know, he lives in Sierra Leone, Africa, uh, on the northwestern side of Africa, and he preaches there. Um, His his wife was pregnant recently, and Thanksgiving last year, they found out with um, a scan of their baby, there was some kind of heart problem. And the doctors in Africa told them that they would need to do a C-section unless they could go to America. (laughs) And the thing about even the best hospital, they were at the best hospital. The best hospital in that region, it's not very good. (laughs) They don't have an ICU unit. They don't have the tools or resources to take care of a premature baby. So from Dan and Sonia's perspective, if they had a C-section, that baby's as good as dead. And Sonia's life would probably be in pretty grave danger as well if they were to do that there. So what did they do? (laughs) came to America because they recognized America had resources that Africa did not have. And so they came here and they had a safe delivery of the baby. The baby is healthy and Lord willing, they're planning on going back to Africa at the beginning of March, March 12th, Lord willing, I think is the date. Why did they do that? <laughs> because they recognized Africa lacked a resource that they needed for life. You see, that's what Jesus is saying in verse 50 and 51. Your fathers ate the bread in the wilderness. That was given by God. And they died. (laughs) The kingdom is the only place with eternal resources. And if the gospel, which conveys an abundance of spiritual blessings and eternal life, if God's appeal in the gospel doesn't draw us, we're going to (laughs) die. And there is no kingdom on earth that can solve that problem, that can sustain us eternally. That is only Jesus and his government. Other than that, we're doomed. <laughs> and again, the only people that are going to be a part of that kingdom, they learn about the nature of this kingdom and its resources and its exclusive resources. And like my brother in law, if we understand the urgency of that problem, that we are going to die, we are condemned if we do not get out of the kingdoms of this world and get into the kingdom of heaven, we're going to do whatever it takes. For Dan and Sonia, that was inconvenient, <laughs> it was expensive. But God has paid the price. (laughs) We don't have to pay any money to get into God's kingdom. We don't have to spend some worldly resource. We need to believe. We need to confess Jesus as Lord, repent of things that are destroying us and taking us away from God and separating us and be baptized for the remission of our sins. (laughs) The price has been paid and access has been opened. But again, the resources of the kingdom, they fundamentally demand that I change my values. And if I'm not willing to change my values, then the kingdom is not for me. And so many disciples, even hearing this, walked away from Jesus. All right, John 10. Let's make one more brief point on this. This is not in any way, with this last point, to undermine the abundance that is in this kingdom. John 10, verses 9 through 11 This is in the passage Jason was reading where Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. There is security, real security in the kingdom. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There is real abundant life in the kingdom. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You know, Jesus died for us. The king of this kingdom died for you to show you how diligently he will provide for you. There is real security only in that kingdom. There is real abundant life, real life, only in that kingdom. Only in that kingdom. And that leads us to this last point, that this kingdom has an enemy. Turn to John chapter 8. And the way God's enemy works is to keep us out of the kingdom by deceiving us into thinking everything's okay, <laughs> that we have abundance without being in the kingdom, that we can live independently from God, and it's not a big deal, inconsequential. John chapter 8, 43 through 45, to illustrate the enemy of the kingdom. John chapter 8, 43 through 45. So again, as Jesus is disputing with the Jews, trying to make things as clear as he possibly can, says this, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Satan is both deceiver and destroyer. You know, if you remember the sermon last week where I talked about what is sin, why is it bad? You know, we looked at the fact that sin is that which always deceives and destroys. Always. Sin always deceives and always hides destruction through deception. Jesus said in John 18, he came to testify to the truth. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And outside of that kingdom is deception. Satan's kingdom is built on lies. He is the father of lies. And in John 12, Jesus overcame the enemy. Before I get there, um, there is one more thing that I wanted to say before I move too quickly here. One thing I mentioned last week with what is sin and why is it bad, I want to reemphasize this. Satan's deception works through our desires. Jesus told the Jews, why can you not hear my word? You want to do the desires of your father. Again, this isn't just a problem of intellectual understanding. The Jews were hearing the perfect teacher say the perfect things in the perfect way with the perfect tone of voice and they still weren't believing. If we want to get out of deception, we have to change our desires. Please remember that. This is an issue where we want the wrong things. And when we want the wrong things, and when our our desire is not towards the truth and not towards the Lord, Satan can manipulate us through those desires that are not oriented to the truth. But John 12, verse 27 through 33. Jesus said, Now my soul has become dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That is the devil. Verse 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was about to die. I mentioned last week that Jesus' death demonstrates the realities of sin. It's like he unmasks the deception of sin. But something I regret not emphasizing enough is Jesus' death also emphasizes the reality of God's solution. You know, why is it when he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself? Because Jesus both unmasks the enemy He shows the urgency of our need to be reconciled with God, but he demonstrates how far God goes to bridge the gap of us being divided from him and being reconciled. How far he'll go, how deeply he loves us, the covenant he will make with us. Jesus demonstrates in his death, not only does he overcome the enemy, but he invites us freely into that victory and to share in that victory and to be empowered to do as he did, to overcome and share in that victory. That's where we'll stop the lesson for this this morning. So remember, Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. There is personal salvation, but that personal salvation exists because the kingdom has been established. And a kingdom has a government first, a king and a law. A kingdom has community. A kingdom is a kingdom if there aren't citizens or people in it kingdom has resources and the resources of the kingdom that draw us in aren't wealth and fame and better job opportunities it's eternal life and it's not that the kingdom makes our earthly life better necessarily physically it's that it gives us hope that we need and fourth and finally the kingdom has an enemy and that satan's kingdom is a kingdom of lies And Jesus came to testify to the truth that there is a kingdom that deals with reality and we need to believe that reality and be born again. All right, if you'll pray with me, we'll say a prayer for these things and then afterwards we'll have our invitation song. Pray with me.